You're listening to Evil, a true crime podcast. Join me each week as I bring you real people, real stories, real crimes, and the evil they encountered. Hi guys, welcome back. Today is July 2nd and I'm recording live from inside my closet per usual because that's where I can get the best um, acoustics I guess you could say. How are you guys doing today? The case that I'm going to be bringing you is an unsolved missing persons case and I've actually wanted to cover this case a while back but as you know life got complicated. Anyways here we are. This case actually just had its 28th year anniversary of being unsolved. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this case. I will say I'm going to be covering just the basics. There are plenty of podcasts that you can find on different platforms that go in depth that just involve this case only. Um, And they do an amazing, amazing job of going super in depth of what happened. Um, But I'm going to just be giving you the basics. So without further ado, like I said, let's get into it. You're watching KMTN. Thank you so much for joining us. Seven-year-old Jody Hoosentrud had a bright future in TV news. Jody Hoosentrud. Jody Hoosentrud. Named Jody Hoosentrud. But on June 27, 1995, the hopes and dreams of the hometown TV anchor mysteriously faded to black. You're listening to Evil. I'm your host, Leslie, and today we embark on a journey back in time to explore the enduring mystery of Jody Hoosentrud, a case that has confounded investigators for over 28 years. I'm here to delve into the details of Jody's disappearance, examine the evidence, and shed light on the ongoing efforts to uncover the truth. On a fateful summer morning of June 27, 1995, Jody Hoosentrud, a bright and talented 27-year-old news anchor in Mason City, Iowa, disappeared without a trace. As the investigation unfolded, it became clear that Jody's disappearance was not a simple case of running away or getting lost. Instead, it hinted at something much more sinister. In this episode, we're going to retrace the events leading up to Jody's vanishing and examine the various theories that have emerged throughout the years. And guys, there's so many. Was she a victim of foul play? Did she end up crossing paths with someone who meant her harm? Or could there be a deeper, hidden motive behind her disappearance? We're going to delve into the extensive efforts made by law enforcement, the tireless dedication of Jody's family and friends, and the enduring hope that one day the truth will be revealed. Jody Sue Hoosentrude was born June 5, 1968 in Long Prairie, Minnesota. She was the youngest daughter of Maurice Nicholas Hoosentrude and Imogene Jane Hoosentrude. In high school, Jody excelled at golf, and she was considered a promising talent, She and her team won a state Class A tournament in both 1985 and in 1986. After high school, Jody went to St. Cloud State University where she studied mass communications and speech communications. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1990. Jody was described as being the ultimate 
optimist. She was always super positive. She was the kind of person who, if you were feeling down, found a way to bring you up and just made you feel happy and special. She was always in competition, but not with other people. She was always in competition with herself, just trying to be the best version of herself that she could be. After graduating college, Jody's first job was with Northwest Airlines. She began her broadcasting career with CBS affiliate KGAN in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, as the station Iowa City's bureau chief, then returned to Minnesota for a job at ABC affiliate KSAX in Alexandria. Jody later returned to Iowa for her position as CBS affiliate KIMT in Mason City. On June 26, 1995, Jody spent her morning as she would any other weekday by anchoring the news on KIMT TV between 6 and 7 a.m. Around 9 a.m., Jody attended a golf tournament fundraiser. Jody attended the yearly Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf tournament fundraiser. Due to rain, Jody and her golf team gathered at the golf courses clubhouse before she had to head home. Jody's golf team consisted of two local businessmen and a KIMT TV sales associate, according to the Find Jody website. It is believed that Jody wanted to change her phone number the next day after getting a string of inappropriate phone calls. After running home to change into dry clothes after the golf tournament, Jody rejoined her golf team at the Mason City Country Club for the awards dinner. Jody spent her time socializing and having fun. According to two members of her golf team, they explained that Jody, during the dinner, had mentioned that she had been getting annoying phone calls and had plans to change her home phone number. At around 8 p.m. on the 26th, Jody reportedly left the country club after saying goodbye to members of her golf team and as well as her news directors. Jody returned home after leaving the country club. All right, so I know I'm being very specific with the time. And that's because that's actually super crucial in this case. So just remember that she left the country club at 8 o'clock. By 8.24 p.m. on June 26, 1995, Jody had made it into her apartment. And we know this because she made a phone call. Once she arrived back at her home, Jody called her friend Kelly Turgeson. Jody had a short conversation with Kelly's husband who informed her that Kelly was not home at the time. Later, Kelly's husband would explain to investigators that Jody seemed cheerful during that short call. Not much information regarding the night of the 26th after this point is known regarding Jody's actions. All right, now remember what I said about that timeline, right? Although a friend of Jody's, John Van Sice, reported that Jody visited his home that night. John told investigators that she had visited his home to watch a videotape of a surprise 27th birthday party that he had hosted for Jody earlier in that month. And guys, I have so many questions. At what time did she go watch this video? And the only reason I'm asking is because there's some people on Reddit who believe that that didn't even happen. And now I've gone online and there's obviously when you look up her case, that's the first thing that's brought up. Oh, that she watched a video with this man. But I've never actually seen it where it was confirmed that it didn't indeed happen. It's just always been assumed, but I don't know if it's confirmed that she did indeed go and watch 
this video with him. Jody normally arrived at the KIMT TV news station where she worked at 3 a.m. in order to anchor the 6 a.m. morning show. On the morning of June 27, 1995, Jody had apparently overslept. Now, this wasn't unusual for her. She sometimes overslept, and her and her producer had this thing where if one of them overslept or was running late, they would call each other and wake each other up. So around 4 a.m., when Jody still hadn't arrived to the news station, her producer, Amy Coons, called Jody and woke her up. Amy later explained to investigators that Jody sounded okay and explained that she would be in to work as soon as possible. That was the last time that anyone spoke to Jody Hoosentrude. At around 5 a.m., Amy called Jody again. When Jody, who lived approximately five minutes away from the news station, had still not arrived, Amy called her again, but she got no answer. Amy would instead anchor the news at 6 a.m. when Jody failed to come in to work. And that was unlike her. At around 7.13, once Amy finished the newscast, she asked a KIMT TV manager to call the police and request a welfare check on Jody. And first of all, Amy, I know you've been super hard on yourself, honey, but you did what you could in the moment that you could. And good for you. I know I've seen the interviews and she just guilt trips herself of the things that she could have done. But you know what? You're a girl's girl, and I love that for you. And I'm sorry that you had to go through the things that you did. But Amy Coons, in my opinion, is amazing for acknowledging and knowing that something was wrong. The first Mason City police officer who arrived on the scene immediately realized that some time of crime had occurred in the parking lot of Jody's apartment building. Jody's red Mazda Miata was in the parking lot. Jody's car key was found bent. Her high heels, a blow dryer, hairspray, and her earrings were also found scattered on the ground near her car. The officer also noted a partial palm print on Jody's car as well as scuff marks on the ground, proving that some sort of struggle had ensued. And it also had drag marks. While checking Jody's second floor apartment, police did not notice anything that was out of place, but continued to conduct interviews with Jody's neighbors. Some of her neighbors informed police that they had heard a scream sometime around 4.30 a.m. that morning. Finally, a man who lived up the street from Jody's apartment told police that he had seen a light-colored van, possibly a mid-1980s white Ford Ecoline, in the parking lot that morning with its lights on and its engine running. As always, you can head to Instagram. I'm going to have pictures of the crime scene there so you can check them out. That morning, John Vincise, a friend of Jody's, arrived at the crime scene and spoke with investigators. He explained that Jody visited his home the night before to watch a videotape from a birthday party he had thrown her. He also informed them that Jody has spent the preceding weekend with himself and other friends on water skiing trip in Iowa City, Iowa. Looking for answers in the disappearance of Jody Hoosentrude requires walking on a road well-traveled. Authorities investigated many theories and persons of interest. One person they looked at was considered to be one of Jody's closest friends, John Van Syce. We're all praying and hoping that she's okay, and we just have to keep praying and keep hoping, and I think she'll come back. I really do. Jody had met John Van Syce while both were living in the Key Apartments in 1994. He was 20 years her senior. Jody's friends say they shared mutual interests, like water skiing. Um, he, I, I think he really liked 
hanging around Jody's friends. And Jody, obviously. John Van Sice claims to be the last person to see Jody. We tried to rebuild exactly, uh, basically a timeline on what she was doing up until that. So we interviewed literally hundreds of people. We Van Sice would be interviewed by law enforcement almost immediately. What do we know about John Van Sice? Through official documents, we know that he was born in Des Moines in 1946 and attended the Baxter school system and then married. In 1994, he was divorced. After the divorce, John moved to Mason City. His address was the Key Apartments. He and Jody were neighbors and became good friends. I think she was spending more time with, with John than she was with really anyone. Jody had confided with family members about her relationship with Van Sites. She did kind of imply to my mom that she thought maybe he could be getting a little interested in her. Jody's sister told us she was uncomfortable while eating breakfast with Van Sites and others the day after Jody disappeared. Sudden, and I said, didn't Jody ever mention her dad, you know, when visiting with you? Um, and stuff that he had died of colon cancer. No, she never mentioned her dad to me at all. He just kind of pushed his chair back and he was real cold. Very unfriendly at that point. Van Sice had thrown a surprise birthday party for Jody earlier in the month of June of 1995. And the night before she disappeared, Jody went to his house to view a videotape of the event. To this day, Jody's sister Joanne still has questions for Van Sice. I'd say, John, exactly how did you feel toward Jody? Was she just a friend, as you've kind of claimed in all the interviews? But I've heard otherwise, that you really wanted more of a relationship with her. I really want the truth. John had strong feelings for Jody. I even laid my vote after her because just, just because she's Jody, and, and she's, she's been such a big part of my life here lately, and, and she just makes me feel so good. But friend Tammy Baker remembers Jody explaining it wasn't a serious relationship. I did ask her at one point if they were, if they were involved. And she said, absolutely not. Six News First Investigation. So what do you guys think about that? In my personal opinion, I always think it's kind of weird when someone just happens upon a crime scene. It just, it's a little odd. Just me personally. In the hours following the welfare check, search teams had been convened before searching the immediate area surrounding the apartment complex. The Mason City Police Department was aided by the FBI and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation in their search. The search consisted of not only volunteers, but also included rescue teams with divers and police dogs, which searched the Winnebago River and its surrounding areas. Two days after Jody disappeared, KIMT anchor and friend of Jody's, Robin Wolfram, interviewed John Van Sice. He said, quote, Jody was like a daughter to me. She was just like my own child, end quote, Wolfram told 48 Hours. Van Sice also said police had interviewed him twice, but gave him no indication that he was a suspect. In September of 1995, Jody's family hired private investigators from McCarthy and Associates Investigative Services, Inc. in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who in turn enlisted the assistance of Omaha, Nebraska private investigator Doug Jossa. McCarthy and Jossa appeared on several national television shows, including America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. In November of 1995, Jassa and McCarthy, along with some of Jody's family members, traveled to Los Angeles, California to meet with three prominent psychics. This meeting was televised and served as a pilot for the Psychic Detectives television show. Although each show generated several leads, none resulted in concrete evidence or identification of a suspect. 
For this to have happened in 1995, I think it shows just how desperate her family was to find her and seek any kind of answers. And I would do the same thing too. If I had a family member who was missing, I would do whatever and anything I could to find that person. In May of 1996, approximately 100 volunteers searched an area of Zero Gordo County and left flags to mark anything that appeared suspicious. Each of these sites was re-examined by law enforcement, but no promising evidence was located. Police and private investigators have conducted more than a thousand interviews, but none have resulted in conclusive evidence pointing to a suspect. In 1997, Tony Jackson was charged with raping several women in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. He later landed on police radar as a possible person of interest in Jody's case. FindJody.com member Jay Alberino, formerly a detective with the Woodsboro Police Department, worked the Jackson investigation. Alberino learned that Jackson was living in Iowa when Jody disappeared. And get this, guys. It was just two blocks from where she worked at. You know that TV station, KIMT? Yeah. He lived just two blocks away from there. Abrio thinks Jackson may have watched Jody on TV, known her schedule, and even stalked her. But no forensic evidence was ever found linking Jackson to Jody. He is in jail right now, currently serving the equivalent of a life prison sentence for the Minnesota rapes. In 1998, WCCO investigative reporter Carolyn Lowe started reporting on Jody's disappearance while covering the Tony Jackson case. Lowe interviewed a former jailmate who alleged that Jackson had written rap song lyrics possibly indicating that Jody was buried near a farm silo in Tiffin, Iowa. Carolyn Lowe investigated the lead from Tony Jackson's former jailmate. Lowe, with law enforcement and cadaver dogs, searched a site in Tiffin, Iowa, a few hours from Mason City for possible human remains, but that lead led nowhere. In 1999, Mason City police issued the following statement. Quote, after conducting a thorough investigation which included interviews, crime laboratory analysis, records review, and a polygraph examination, Tony Jackson is not considered at this time a viable suspect in the investigation. End quote. In 2003, FindJody.com was created by Minnesota TV journalists Josh Benson and Gary Peterson with the goal to keep Jody's case in the spotlight and for the website to serve as a clearinghouse for tips that might lead to Jody. When a new case arrives that has similarities with Jody's or whenever remains are discovered in the area, speculation quickly leads to a connection with the missing reporter. However, no suspect has been identified and all remains to date have been proven to be from other sources. In 2005, many media outlets, including 2020, again focused the story as the 10th anniversary of Jody's disappearance approached. On the 10th anniversary of Jody's disappearance, her closest friends in Minnesota created Jody's Network of Hope which is a nonprofit organization which hosts annual golf tournaments in Long Prairie, Minnesota in Jody's honor. Jody's Network of Hope was created by her family and friends as a way to keep her spirit alive. The foundation dedicated a fitting memorial in honor of Jody, who was an avid golfer. A granite bench sits on the 10th hole at Long Prairie Country Club in Jody's Minnesota hometown. The foundation has given away over $40,000 in scholarships since it started in 2005. And like, how amazing is that? How absolutely amazing is that? That out of a tragedy, they're doing something so amazing. 
And if things weren't weird enough, in early June 2008, photocopies of the 84 pages of Jody's personal journal were anonymously mailed to a local newspaper. The Mason City Globe Gazette received the material in a large envelope with no return address and a June 4th postmark from Waterloo. The original journal has been in possession of law enforcement since the investigation began. Within days, Mason City Police reported that the sender had come forward, and guess who it was, guys? Drum roll, please. The person that sent it in was identified as the wife of the former Mason City Police Chief. I have so many questions. Why does she have it? What was the point of sending it? And what was in that journal? So many questions. Although noting that the former chief had taken a copy of the journal home when he left office, the police gave no motive as to why the woman had sent it into the newspaper. So like I said, major side eye, like huge red flag. What is happening? In May 2015, all 100 members of the Iowa House of Representatives signed a letter requesting Mason City to declare June 27th as Jody Husentrude Day in honor of her memory and that of all victims in unsolved cases. This was ultimately declined. On June 27th, 2015, FindJody.com held a walk on the 20th anniversary of her disappearance from Jody's apartment building to the new station where she worked. In a December 2016th opinion piece for the Northwest Iowa Review, retiring state representative John Kuehr described his experience with the case as a member of the Iowa State House Public Safety Committee and suggested a cover-up by Mason City officials. And if I butchered this man's name, I am so sorry. Don't come for me. In 2017, a grand jury judge in Iowa submitted a subpoena for fingerprints and DNA from an unnamed suspect in Jody's disappearance. This did not lead to any indictment in her case. On March 20, 2017, the Mason City Police Department executed search warrants which gave investigators access to the GPS data on two vehicles, a 1999 Honda Civic and a 2013 GMC. Can you guess who they belong to? Both related to John Van Sice. The warrants remained sealed. So, what do you guys think about that? I just I have so many questions. In addition to the 2017 search warrant, which remains sealed, authorities convened another grand jury in 2017 for which Van Sice was subpoenaed to testify. He was also asked to provide finger and palm prints to the grand jury. Grand jury proceedings are not public. We do not know the outcome, but it's safe to assume he was not indicted. To explain the outcome of either of those grand juries? No, I, that's not something that those would be confidential court proceedings, and I would be at liberty to comment on those. In April of 2019, Van Sice came forward and issued two statements via an intermediary, saying he had absolutely no involvement in the apparent abduction of his friend Jody Husenstreet. He denied having a romantic relationship with Jody and said that since her disappearance, he has fully cooperated with all local, state, and federal law enforcement officials. He says he has been the subject of two voluntary polygraph tests and DNA testing. He I would love to know what's in those search warrants because, in my opinion, there has to be a reason, a cause, if you will, for a judge to sign search warrants. So, again, not pointing the finger at anyone, just putting that out there. 
In June of 2018, FiAndJody.com placed four permanent billboards seeking information in the disappearance of Jody throughout Mason City and the surrounding areas. In January of 2020, a billboard in Mason City that was seeking information into the disappearance of Jody was vandalized. The words Frank Stern's Machine Shed was painted in yellow along the bottom half of the billboard. Frank Stearns was a long-term investigator working on Jody's case with the Mason City Police Department, but has since retired. The current Mason City Police Chief does not believe that this vandalism was a tip, but instead was done by someone with their own agenda. So, I'm just going to go on this little rant real quick. If you're one of these people, like, you're disgusting. I don't understand. Like, the, I just don't get it. If you have an issue with the investigators or the police or whatever, there's better ways to do that. But to vandalize somebody's billboard that's missing is so classless. It's literally your trash. Your trash. In 2020, the Mason City Police Department and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations said that they are still actively investigating Jody's disappearance. That same year, FindJody.com launched a podcast by the same name in order to gain a new audience to share information on the case and generate new leads. And guys, remember in the beginning when I said there's better, more in-depth podcast? If this episode intrigued you go check it out they do a phenomenal phenomenal job and are super in-depth on her case on march 11th 2021 human remains were recovered with clothing on the shore of the winnebago river close to north illinois avenue in mason city iowa investigators do not believe there is any connection to jody's disappearance jody's family made the painful decision to declare her dead in may of 2001 in 2022, ABC's 2020 debuted a new special titled Gone at Dawn, overviewing the disappearance of Jody and interviewing those close with the case. The episode was the third time 2020 featured Jody's case. It's been 28 years, as of last Tuesday, since Jody Husatrut disappeared. Her mother, Imogene, passed away in 2014, never finding out what happened to Jody. Jody survived by her sister. I am going to insert some news clips of people that were close to Jody and of investigators speaking on the 28th anniversary of her disappearance. My gut says it was somebody she knew, and I think the person thought, if I can't have her, nobody will. That's Amy Coons. She is the last person to ever speak to Jody Husentrude. The Minnesota native and Iowa news anchor disappeared on this day 28 years ago. What do you guys think about that? I just wanted to add this little note in and say that the year or a year after Jody disappeared, her coworkers at KIMT planted a tree. That tree now stands so tall and big. It's crazy and it's honestly just so sad at the same time. There also is a theory that John Van Sys, and I don't know if it's true or not, has developed Alzheimer's. So... Just wanted to insert that there. Jody was never found, and no one has ever been charged in her disappearance. Is it safe to say this is a homicide investigation? We still haven't classified it a missing persons case, and until there's evidence that would point us in a different direction, that's the angle that we work from. It's safe to say this is Iowa's most famous unsolved case. What makes this case so difficult to solve? The challenge is the age of the case. I think, you know, we... Uh, there's no way to go back and preserve record. Technology was clearly different uh, when this happened back in 1995. There's just challenges to going back and 
and essentially recreating the past. What is ultimately going to solve this case? Is it, is it like one more piece of a puzzle? Like, what, what are we looking for here? I think there are a few different things that could, could help us with this and that, that could be useful. Um, certainly there's a wish list for us, um, but I don't, think, I don't think that's anything we've discussed publicly at this point. The ground search for Chief Brinkley insists they are continuing to work the case. We haven't stopped. Um, we're still working on this. Uh, I think it's something that we want to be absolutely certain about at the point that we would make a move on something. And at, at that point, uh, with the county attorney having some game plan for how to move ahead. And so I think we'll be very deliberate about how we handle that. We're being very deliberate about that now, um, particularly as we get different questions about mm -hmm. who parties are or are not possible suspects. And we want to be very careful about that because we'll need to answer all of those questions as well in a court of law at some point, we hope. Sounds like you, you're getting close. Uh, I, I think that we have some working theories that we, uh, that we continue to work on. In my personal opinion, it sounds like Chief Brinkley has a pretty good idea on who the suspect could be or suspects. And he just wants to make sure that he has enough evidence to not only take it to trial, but to convict. And that's it, guys. As we reach the end of this episode, I want to take a moment to reflect on the enduring mystery of Jody's case. Jody's disappearance in 1995 sent shockwaves through her community and left her loved ones in a perpetual state of uncertainty. Throughout this episode, we've delved into the details of Jody's life, the events leading up to her vanishing, and the tireless efforts to uncover the truth. Despite the passage of time, the questions surrounding her disappearance remain unanswered. It's been 28 years. 28 years. And her loved ones and friends deserve answers. If you or anyone you know have information about the disappearance of Jody Hoosentrup, please call the Mason City Police Department at 641-421-3636. Once again, that's 641-421-3636. To stay connected, follow our Instagram at evilpodcast88, also on TikTok at evilpodcast, and our Twitter is at evilpodcast88. Comment, like, share, review, give us a rating, let us know what you think, and as always, watch the fuck out for evil. I'll catch you on the next one. Bye, guys.